0: Welcome to the Central Baptist Church podcast. Located in the heart of Victoria, B.C., we are a church that seeks to renew our community through the gospel. For more information, visit centralbaptistchurch.ca.
1: The scripture reading today is Ephesians 6, 10 to 17. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
0: All right, so uh, Remembrance Day Sunday, uh, appropriate, of course, then, that we are continuing on in this series on the armor of God, and what we've been seeing so far in this series is that Paul says we are in a battle. He explains that one of the reasons why life can be hard, one of the reasons why uh, it can be difficult to follow Jesus is because there's an unseen realm. And within this unseen realm, there are evil spiritual forces, supernatural evil, and they are bent on our destruction. And so Paul has been teaching us that once we become a believer, we have to make sure that we stand firm within the battle against this unseen realm. So our battle is not with people. Our battle is with this unseen realm. And so, what we've been saying is that God has given us, in Christ, all that is necessary to stand firm in this battle. In the language of Paul, he has given us the armor that we need to put on. And if we put on that armor, we will be able to stand firm. So what he's been saying then is that you have everything you need. If you've come to Christ, if you become a believer, Jesus has saved you, God has given you all that you need, but the reason why you can be defeated is that you have to learn to put it on. So, for instance, listen to 2 Peter 1, verse 3. It says, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. So he didn't say he's given us part of what we need. He didn't say he's given us most of what we need. He says he has given us everything we need. In the language of Ephesians 6, he has given us all the armor that we need in order to stand firm and not be defeated. So, living the Christian life then means learning all that is already yours in Christ and putting it on. Learning to apply what has already been given to you. In other words, you already have all that you need now you need to learn how to apply it now you need to learn how to put it on this is what Jesus was getting at when he was in the boat with the disciples in that storm and they came and woke him up and they said master master uh, don't you care about us we're all going to die we're going to drown and Jesus woke up he calmed the storm and do you remember what he said after that he turned to his disciples and he said where is your faith now, he didn't say, you have no faith, so go get some. He did, <laughs> excuse me, he didn't say, you need more faith, so learn how to get more faith. What he was saying to them was, you have all you need to get through this trial already. Get out your faith and use it. In other words, you're not using what you already have. You're not applying what you already know. You need to take out what you already have, and you need to begin to apply it in this moment. Another good illustration of this comes from uh, what is really now a very old movie, but uh, one of the greatest movies, uh, in this worldly sense anyways, uh, of all time. Shawshank Redemption, old movie now, but there's a story about a guy named Red, and Red is a convict, and he's been in jail for 30 years, played by the great Morgan Freeman, uh, who really has the greatest voice of all time. Morgan Freeman can like read the phone book, and I'll just listen to it on podcast. <laughs> Incredible voice. So Red, the convict... He serves 30 years in prison. He finally gets out of prison, but he has to learn to apply the new freedoms that he has. He's been granted all the rights and privileges of a free citizen now, and he has to learn to live it out. And that's a process for him. So one of the final scenes in the movie, he's gotten a job bagging groceries at a local supermarket. And he, he looks across all the tills and all the customers, and his manager is across all the people, and he kind of yells across, just imagine this in the superstore or something, yells across to his manager, sir, sir, bathroom break, sir? And the manager kind of goes, Ugh, come over here. So he, he walks over to the manager, and the manager says to him, you don't need to ask me every time you need to go. Just go, Understand? And so the next scene cuts to him in the bathroom, and he's looking into the mirror, and he says, 30 years I've been asking permission to go. I can't do it without being given the go-ahead. Upon his release, Red was given all the privileges, all the freedoms of any other free citizen, but he had an old mentality. He had to learn to live out what was already his. He had to learn to learn, to apply what was already his. He didn't have to earn his freedoms. He was already given his freedoms. But he had to learn to live it out in everyday practical life. This is what Paul is getting at in Ephesians. The first half of Ephesians is, this is what God has done to save you in Christ. You need to know what it means to be saved. You need to know who Jesus is as the king overall. You need to give him your life. Yes, that's the first half of Ephesians. The second half of Ephesians is, you've been given all these spiritual blessings in Christ. Now you've got to learn how to live it out. You've got to learn how to apply it. And in Ephesians 6, in our passage in particular, Paul is saying, once you become a Christian, you do not need to be defeated by the attacks of this unseen realm at all. No, they are not your masters anymore. You are free. And Jesus has given you all that you need to stand your ground in this battle. But you need to learn to put on the armor. You need to learn to apply what God has already given you in Christ. So put it on, apply it, use what is already yours. So that's what Paul's doing in Ephesians 6 in this armor of God passage. And so far in our series, we've looked at the first three pieces of armor. And today, we're actually going to look at the fourth and the fifth pieces of armor because we need to speed this up because apparently this guy's coming next week who's going to take over the pulpit and I don't get to speak. Uh, So uh, Scott Curry will be here next week. You're going to want to hear him, but he's not speaking on the armor of God. So I'm going to take two pieces today, all right? So these two pieces are identified for us in verses 16 and 17. Here's what we read. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation. So, we'll spend most of our time on the shield of faith and then we'll wrap it up together on the helmet of salvation. So, first of all, the shield. Here's the background Roman soldiers had two kinds of shields. The first shield was a very small shield, it was used in hand to hand combat, and that is not what Paul is referring to here. Rather, Paul is referring to here, the shield, that it was, it was basically a door that you stood behind. I mean, the shield was four feet high, so, you know, about four feet high, two and a half feet wide, and it was made out of two layers of wood that were glued together. It was kind of shaped a little bit. It was covered in leather, and then it was bound with iron on the top and the bottom. So there's kind of a, a modern depiction of what they would have looked like, uh, some nice paint on it, really intimidating with the red color and all that kind of stuff. How's your average Roman shield? But not the hand to hand one. Now, soldiers did not carry this shield with them all the time. They didn't march endless miles with this giant shield. It was used when they were under heavy attack. Very specific use. For instance, if, the Roman, if a section of the Roman army was storming uh, some sort of a city and there was a wall, uh, they would grab all of these shields and they would start moving towards the wall. And you can imagine, of course, if you're going to lay siege to a city, the people in the city actually have the advantage over you in one sense of the word, that if you are moving towards the wall, what are they going to do? Well, one thing they're going to do is take all their archers, line them up on the walls, and they are just going to start unleashing firepower down upon you. And you are sitting ducks. You are vulnerable the closer you get to that wall. And so another tactic what the enemy would do is they would take those arrows, they would dip them into pitch, then they would lift them up, they'd light the pitch on fire, and then they would take the arrows and fire them. Now that has a few purposes to it. One would be that when that arrow strikes, the pitch splatters. And so then wherever it splatters, clothing catches on fire, which means bodies catch on fire. So it's one thing to be trying to attack and your buddy gets hit in the chest with an arrow. That's terrible. But it's a whole lot more intimidating when you see bodies burning all around you. It's a terrible thing to come under that kind of attack where flaming arrows are being rained down upon you. It was in moments like that that the Roman soldiers would get out, really, a door to stand behind. And so here's what they would do. Here's a picture. You've probably seen this before. When marching into battle, maybe the, maybe it's not a, 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 a wall they're attacking, but maybe just a giant army and the archers are launching. This is what they would do. And you can see just by the way that they put the shields above themselves, where they put the shields all around. This is almost impregnable, isn't it? I mean, maybe an arrow can get through one tiny spot, but... of the arrows, they're just going to bounce off. They're going to just go out, and these soldiers are going to be able to get to the wall or get to the hand-to-hand combat that they need to engage in. And so the shield then, this shield in particular, was not something that you needed all the time. It was something that we use in a time of great crisis. It was something that you would use when you were under heavy attack. So that's a little bit of background on what the shield is. Now let's ask three questions about this piece of armor. Here's the first question. What are the fiery arrows the devil shoots at Christians or the unseen realm of evil spiritual powers? What are these fiery arrows? And I'll borrow a few thoughts from Tim Keller here. Here's the answer, I think, what what Paul is trying to get at, that it refers to particular times of crisis in which God allows Satan to attack us, allows the unseen realm to attack us. Notice in verse 16, of course, that it is the devil, it is the evil one who is firing these arrows. But secondly, notice that he's referring to a specific time of crisis here. The New Testament often uses this language when it speaks of fiery ordeals. This is the language of heavy attack, times of crisis, very difficult times that you are in. So for instance, to Christians living in a time of suffering, the apostle Peter writes these words. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. So this is kind of the same picture. A whole host of arrows lit on fire are being launched at you. Heavy attack, a fiery ordeal. You're coming down underneath the wrath of the army that's coming against you. So what are the arrows that the evil one is firing at us? Well, it's just any time of crisis in your life. Any type of crisis that will lead you away from Christ, away from following him. So, I don't know, maybe it's a phone call or an email that you get that just, it just wrecks you for a week or two. Maybe someone you love passes away suddenly. Maybe you lose your job. Maybe you get divorced. Someone, or Someone breaks up with you. It's these moments when all seems to fall apart. Or you're trying to live for Christ and all of a sudden you go through this season of severe doubts and you think, maybe I've just misunderstood all of this. So you're thinking, you're going through severe temptation, always feeling like you're in this giant struggle. Whereas a few months earlier, you weren't in that kind of a struggle. Extended times of discouragement. In other words, it's not just the little moments every day in life. You can put those into this category if you want. But it's more referring to those moments of crisis, those moments of hardship, When you kind of metaphorically, you look up and the whole sky seems to be black with fiery arrows coming down upon you. Just see the flames everywhere and they're landing everywhere around you. There's nowhere to run and you just sense you are under a heavy barrage of attack. It's in times of crisis like that, and maybe you're in that moment right now, that you need what Paul calls the shield of faith. So, that's the first question. What are the arrows the evil one fires at us? They are these times of crisis, seasons of difficulty, the fiery ordeal. That brings the second question. What purpose does God have in allowing Satan to attack his people with fiery trials. God is sovereign. Satan is a created being. He is really like a dog on a chain and God will allow him to go out as far as he wants to release chain and he will pull that chain back whenever he wants. The world is not yin and yang as in God and the devil. There is only one God and Satan is a created being though far more powerful than us is nothing compared to the creator. So God is somehow permitting all of this to come to pass. But why would God allow his people to come under such attacks? Here is, I think, what the answer is, and then I'll explain it. What Satan uses to destroy us, God uses to perfect us. In other words, what Satan wants to use for evil, God is going to turn and use it for good. So remember that these trials are referred to as fire. But fire, also, biblically speaking, is not always a negative, destructive thing. It can be, of course, it is in Ephesians 6. Uh, these arrows, the fiery arrows, are meant for our destruction. But fire can also have positive purposes. When you think of gold, maybe most of us are wearing gold rings on your finger. Uh, if you look down, that gold has been purified. It's been heated up so that all the dross, all the imperfections, I mean, nobody wants to buy a ring that's got a little black flecks in it somehow. We don't do that. Uh, that's not what we want. And so somebody has heated that up. A refiner has done the job heating it up, With great heat, (laughs) really, really high heat, in order to burn away the dross and to perfect it. And everywhere the Bible teaches us that God allows these fiery trials to come upon us. And where Satan would seek to consume us, where the unseen powers would use them against us, God wants to take that time of fiery ordeal and use it to shape us, to burn away the impurities, burn away the dross in order to make us more like his perfect son, Jesus Christ. Let's just expand our thinking a little on this. There are at least three images in the Bible for how God uses trials to perfect his people. In John uh, chapter 15, we get this image of a gardener who prunes. In Hebrews 12, we get a picture of a father who disciplines his children. And in Malachi chapter 3, we get a refiner who burns metal to gold. Let's think about these for a moment. They're all the same. Think about a gardener. This is not my area of expertise. But you'll know exactly what we mean by it. There are people who are talented in gardening. And they know how to take, for instance, let's take a tree. An arborist can take a tree and cut back that tree so much that to the untrained eye, you would think that tree's never going to live. They've cut off so many branches. The whole ground seems covered in more tree than is actually left. And yet, an arborist knows exactly what they're doing. They know how to cut and prune. Uh, Any type of gardener's pruning flowers knows how to prune in such a way that you cut it all back because the larger purpose of cutting it back is that it might grow to flourish to be even more beautiful than it was before. In the Bible, then, God will often prune and cut his people, and that hurts. When he's pruning and cutting in our lives, it's not a pleasant experience, but the image there is that he prunes and cuts in order to make us more fruitful. I don't know what's going on with COVID, I don't know God's great purposes, but it seems to me we are clearly in a time of pruning and cutting. And I don't have many reflections on exactly what God is doing, but perhaps we'll start to see it as time goes along. So there's a pruner, a gardener. That's in John 15. Then in Malachi 3, there's a refiner. And as we said, a refiner is someone who knows how to heat up metal to that perfect temperature where it's going to burn away all the dross. So What Malachi teaches us as well is that God will allow his people to go through these fiery ordeals. And when we're in it, what are we thinking? We're thinking, get me out of this. It's too hot. I can't handle this anymore. We don't want to be in there. But the refiner knows what he is doing. He knows exactly what he is doing. He's burning away the imperfections. He has his purposes and he will not allow it to go so hot that we'll just completely break. He knows what he's doing. And then Hebrews 12. This one I think is very powerful. Every good father emphasis on the word good, tries to shape his children's behavior. And he does it through many different ways. Some through positive means, you know, clapping, cheering, encouraging, really important uh, for any good father. But at some point, every good father also must discipline, must have kind of more than negative consequences for the child. But again, assuming all goodness within this, nothing about abuse or anything like that, a good father disciplines his children for their good. Not because he hates his children or anything, but have you ever heard a child, when they're being disciplined, say, thanks, Dad. I can see what you're doing here. I've got, my heart just needs to be shaped, and I know that this is what you're doing with me. I, like, I remember we were teaching our kids not to run out in the street, and one time uh, Emily was in our our. Uh, uh, backyard detached garage and we had an alley behind us and uh, she was on her little pink bike and she started riding out and I heard a car coming down the alley it was coming fast somebody was going way too fast down the alley and she was heading straight out and I just yelled stop and she and she just freaked out and stopped and the car just went right past down the alley and then she started crying why did you yell at me dad why are you doing this and <laughs> I mean, to any of us, this is the most obvious reason in the world. I made you cry. Yes, I did. But I had a reason for it. I had a higher purpose, which you at two years old have not yet understood. This is the picture of God as our Father. That yes, life can be, have its hard moments. And we cannot, we're all children. We sit there and sometimes to the best of our ability, I don't see why God would allow this. But he has purposes. And Hebrews 12 says that discipline is his proof that he loves us. Because any father who loves his children will discipline them. So the fact that we would be allowed to come under discipline is a proof of love. Not a proof that God is against us. Rather, it is a proof of love. So, to bring this together. The evil spiritual powers, their purpose in bringing fiery trials into our lives is to consume, to destroy, to wreck faith, to keep us away from God, to move us into despair, discouragement. God's strategy is to prune, to purify, and to grow us into maturity. Now, how will you keep from being burned up by the devil's arrows when this moment comes? You need to raise the shield of faith. So here's what we write read again in verse 16 in all circumstances take up the shield of faith. That's what we're talking about now. With which you can do something. What can you do? You can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. So when those arrows stick into your your shield, the fire will just kind of go out. It's not going to come onto your clothing, it's not going to come onto you. You can extinguish all the flaming darts Of the evil one. And how do you do it? It's faith. So what is the shield? The shield is faith. It is trust in God. So that then brings us very logically to our final question, which is this. What does it mean to raise the shield of faith for protection? What does this practically look like to say, okay, I'm in these fiery trials. How do I exercise, apply trust in God in these moments? I've already set up a lot of it, and you can probably start to guess it, but let's try to make this really clear. It is faith, it is trust in God that enables us to get through these fiery trials. 1 John 5 says the exact same thing. John says, this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Peter says the same thing. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. How do you do it? Firm in your faith. So John, Peter, Paul, they're all saying the exact same things. And if you went to Hebrews chapter 11, that's that great chapter that just goes through the whole history of people of God, and it's all about faith. How did they overcome the trials? And they had huge trials. I mean, have you read Hebrews 11? At the end, it comes to some were sawed in two, they were burned, uh, they were, had to hide out in mountains and in caves, they were tortured, they were flogged, they were mocked, put to death by the sword. How did they overcome? Faith. Faith, trust in God. They raised the shield of faith. So what does it look like then to raise faith as if it is a shield to protect yourself from these fiery arrows that are coming? Let me give you the answer and then we'll unpack it a little bit more. The answer would be that raising the shield of faith means trusting the promises God has already given you. Again, back to the beginning. He's already given you all that you need. He's made all these promises. He's done all these things for you. Now when you're in these moments, raising the shield means I'm going to trust in what God has said. I'm going to trust him because of what he has said to me. So raising the shield of faith means then that when you feel the pain Of the great gardener pruning and cutting in your life when you're feeling that pain, and and the devil comes in and says, Why would you serve Jesus if it means you have to go through this? This is painful. Trust means raising the shield and saying, I trust that when Jesus says in John 15 that God prunes me in order that I might be more fruitful, he is telling the truth. It means that I trust that the heavenly gardener knows far better than I do what needs to happen in my life, what parts need to be pruned and shaped in order that I might flourish into what God intends me to be. So you're, you're trusting when that moment comes to say, oh, no, God's against me. He's, he, why would he allow this? Why is this cutting so deep? You're saying, I'm just going to come before him and trust him that the gardener knows better than I do how I need to be pruned. And he knows me specifically in my life, knows exactly what little parts need the pruning. Raising the shield of faith means that when hardships come and it gets so hot in the fire that you can hardly bear it, and this is where the whispers come in now, what kind of God would put you in such a situation? Raising the shield of faith means saying, devil, I will not despair. But I will trust that though these hardships are burning me, though the heat is very hot for me right now, the great refiner knows how hot it needs to get. He knows how long I need to be in here in order to burn away some of these impurities that I might come out, my faith even might come out, as precious and pure gold. Raising the shield of faith means that when you feel your heavenly Father's discipline in your life, Here's the thought that's going to come in and it comes to every believer and it comes a lot. And the thought would be this. God, if you would allow this situation in my life, doesn't this mean that you don't care? This, this is where we always go, all of a sudden things are getting very hard. The discipline, it's negative, And we're just saying, this, this is a proof that God doesn't love me. If God loved me, he wouldn't allow this into my life. And yet Hebrews 12 flips that entire thing upon its head and it says the very opposite. Raising the shield of faith means, no, that's a wrong way to think. Because I've learned in the scriptures and I believe the promises of Hebrews 12 that God's discipline is actually his proof of his love for me. Because what father doesn't discipline his kids? Only a father who doesn't care doesn't discipline his kids. Oh, go do whatever you want. But we all know how that'll turn out if a child is never, ever instructed, never receives discipline. They're, never, they're not going to grow up to be what you, they need to be. A good father brings good discipline for the good of the child. and So raising the shield of faith means saying, no, God does love me. In fact, This hard time that I'm going through right now, like a child, I cannot see how it's a proof of God's love. But Hebrews 12 says, he is a father who's disciplining me in order that my life might produce a harvest of righteousness. I will grow into maturity. So raising the shield of faith is applying all the promises that you've got in Jesus. So the question you have to ask in the middle of all the fiery trials is this, will I trust it's the shield of faith. Will I trust? That's the number one question. That's what will enable you to stand firm, to stand your ground. Will I trust? Trust just means saying, if God said it, I'll believe it. God, I don't understand all this, but I am going to trust you. Will I trust that the gardener is wiser than me in the way that he prunes? Will I trust that the refiner knows the exact level of heat that I need in my life? Will I trust that God, my father, will discipline me and his discipline for me is motivated by his love for me and for my good? Will I trust these things? See, raising the shield of faith, really, is trying to reverse the great lie of the garden. The great lie that is at the bottom of all of our hearts. It's the lie that Eve originally believed and Adam with her. The lie that God does not really have your best interest at heart. That's what the serpent was suggesting to her. Why would God give you this one rule? What? I mean, why would he do this against you? Clearly, he's trying to hold back on you, Eve. Clearly, he doesn't have your best interests at heart. I think you'd rather, should not trust your creator. You should rather take life into your own hands. You should figure it out, and then you'll discover how great you really are. That's the ultimate lie under all the lies, is that God, our creator, does not really have our best interests at heart. The shield of faith is raising your, raising your faith against that lie and saying, no, I will trust, though I don't understand. I will trust. That my Creator is wise and that He is good. And I know this because He sent His Son for me. And as we'll talk about in communion, if God would do that for me, that's the ultimate proof that He is for me and not against me. Think of it this way so often we treat God and we want God almost to be like the genie in Aladdin. You know, rub the lamp. You get this all-powerful being come out who can grant anything you want. And really often, that's what we're asking of God. We know you're all-powerful, and this is what we want you to do, God. But what's one of the greatest lessons you learn from the Aladdin story? You don't really know what you want. You think you do. You really, really think you do. You're convinced of it. But what the Aladdin story partly shows you is if you and I get what we really want... We're dead. If God really gave you all the things that you want in your heart, you'd be destroyed. Exactly like a child. If I just gave them when my kids were like three, if I just gave them everything they wanted, they'd probably be literally dead. They wouldn't have survived. Because children don't really know truly what they need. They think they do, but they don't. So do you want to have a God like the genie in Aladdin's lamp? Or do we want a God who's not only all-powerful, But it's truly after our best interest and our good. And though we often can't see it, he's always working all things to that end. So the only way we will survive this barrage of flaming arrows that come against our life is to raise the shield of faith and maybe in pain, maybe in tears, to just come before God and say, I do not understand all your ways. But I will trust your promises, I will trust that when you say you're the gardener, the refiner, and the Father, that I will trust you, that you will bring me through this fiery ordeal in your time. And you know what encourages me most? is talking with many of you here uh, who have followed Christ for 50, 60, 70, 80 years, or when I talk to other pastors who are retired and they've served for 40, 50 years, what encourages me most as you talk with them? None, none of them will ever say, oh, it's been a breeze, this following Jesus thing. It's the best thing I ever did because I got everything I ever wanted. It's never the story. The story is always, it's been a battle. But he is faithful. And so what I, what I see of that, especially when I go to funerals of some just great Christian men or women, the image really would be of a soldier who is now finally Passed on to be with God, their shield is laying down beside them, and it's a shield like a pin cushion filled with arrows. That shield has been raised so many times, the whole thing is just stuck with arrows. It looks like a porcupine, back of a porcupine. Isn't that what we want to be? That's what I want to be. I want to persevere to the end and have raised that shield so many times, there's not much left of it. And it's just covered in all the arrows, but by God's grace, we've made it to the end. Raise the shield. May God enable us to continue to trust him in the fiery ordeal. That's the shield of faith. Now we got a couple more minutes, so let's just do another one, shall we? Let's look at the fifth piece of armor. This one will be a lot faster. Verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation. The helmet is a rather obvious piece of armor. Roman helmets looked something like this. And uh, they were so strong with their metal, really uh, only a a battle axe or a hammer could could crush them. And, of course, we all know why we wear a helmet. Your head is a very important piece of your body. If that gets hit, you're finished. And so the thing about a helmet is it gives a person confidence when they're in the middle of a battle. And we're modern people. We don't really understand this. So here you go. This is how a guy can stand in front of a 90-mile-an-hour fastball. When they're playing baseball, you put on a helmet. And it's got, especially on the one side, depending which way you bat, covers your ear on the one side, and you got a helmet. That's how you can stand with confidence in front of a 90-mile-an-hour fastball. And that's how any soldier can stand in ancient times when you're going into battle. You don't have to worry so much about something small, someone punching you in the head, or even a knife to the back of the head. It's not going to do anything because you've got a helmet on confidence. And Paul is saying we need confidence in the battle, and it comes from putting on what he calls the helmet of salvation. So question number one, what does the helmet represent for the Christian? Clearly, it has to do with salvation. He calls it the helmet of salvation. So does he mean then uh, it's the helmet that we got to just remember that God has saved us in Jesus Christ? It could be that, but the vast majority of Bible commentators do not think that's precisely what it means. And here's one of the best reasons why. Uh, let's look at a passage from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 where Paul writes these words. Since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Key word, hope. The hope of salvation. So hope is something that's future, isn't it? There's no, hope is never a present possession. If it's present, it's no longer a hope. You've attained it. Hope in Christianity is never just wishing that the future will be better. It is always a guarantee of the future. We have hope because God has guaranteed something about the future. But now you might be saying, okay, but I thought we were already saved. Why would we be hoping that God would save us isn 't salvation something that we can already have in Christ? Why would you say it 's something we 're going to get well it 's here that it 's very helpful for us to understand that in the New Testament, this idea of being saved, of salvation in Jesus Christ can be can be talked about in a past, a present, and a future sense. So on the one hand, every single person that comes to Jesus Christ can say, "I have already been saved, past tense." Once you bow the knee to Jesus, once you say, Jesus, forgive my sins, save me, you have been saved. That's the sense that almost all of us fully understand. There's another sense, though, in which the New Testament says we are being saved. So we already have been saved from the penalty of sin, but now we are presently being saved from the presence of sin. Sin is in our lives. It's always there. It's really the power of it. We're being saved from the power of sin. We're becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. So in this present, we are being saved from the power of sin, which we still struggle with. And then there's a future sense. One day, God will fully save us. Jesus will return, and we will be fully saved from the total presence of sin and evil at all. When Christ returns one day, we will fully be saved. So we've already been saved. We are being saved And one day we will fully be saved when God brings us into the new heavens and the new earth. It seems like Paul here then is talking about this future element. That's why he says hope. So if that's the case, if we're right about that, then here's what we would say. The helmet is the confidence we get from knowing that Jesus is going to bring complete victory to his people. It's the confidence we get when we know, according to the Bible, that Jesus is going to bring complete victory to his people. So putting it on the helmet then means applying all these truths that God has given us about the future. This great day that we're longing for, when he will come again, when he will renew the heavens and the earth, when he will banish all evil, all suffering, all pain. He'll bring us into a new heavens and a new earth, and we will dwell with our creator forever. Isn't that what that fourth verse of O Canada is talking about? We're longing for the better day, it said. O God, help us to find in you a lasting rich reward. So that longing for this better day, hoping for this better day, we ever stand on guard. This is the great hope of Christianity. That because God sent Jesus Christ into this world, a day is coming when he is going to renew all things. It's the promise of God. It's the hope that we cling to. And this is what saves us from despair in the battle. Because let's just be honest, this life can be very hard, right? Very hard. And what saves us from despair, from being beaten down, pushed back, we can stand our ground because, mark this, we know how the story ends. Imagine anybody in any story you can think of. If they were in the middle of the darkness of the story, if they knew how the story ended, how would that impact them? Wouldn't it change everything? I mean, even in some stories when, you know, people are under siege in a castle and they they know that the neighboring army is coming to save them, they're filled with confidence. They don't even know at that point whether it's going to be for sure. But when you come to Christ, you know how the story ends. So no matter how dark it gets, no matter how firm and fierce the battle gets, you know how it ends. And if you know how it ends, boy, does that fill you with confidence. It enables you to stand firm, knowing the victory is secure. You have complete confidence. So putting on the helmet means applying what Jesus has already told you about the story. And how the story ends is, Jesus wins. So anyone who belongs to Jesus gets to share in that victory. That's the great hope. So let me just give a couple quick examples. Think about Matthew 24. Jesus tells his disciples that before he comes, there's going to be wars, rumors of wars. His people are going to be persecuted, great trials. He says all this must happen before the end comes. But then he goes on. He says, what should keep you from becoming discouraged? Well, when you're in the middle of all this fiery ordeal, Jesus completes his words by saying one day, quote, They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. You see what Jesus is doing there? He's putting the helmet on us. Saying, you're going to go through a fiery ordeal. It's going to be hard for you, but let me put a helmet on you. And the helmet is, one day... I will return, and I will make all things right. So are you putting on the helmet? Confidence, that's what you can have when you have that kind of hope. Think about the Apostle Paul, all his trials. He writes this in one of his letters, We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. He says, therefore, we do not lose heart. Okay, Paul, how do you not lose heart? I want to know this because Paul truly suffered. So if it worked for him and his big suffering, surely it can work for you and I, right? So, Paul, how do we not lose heart? Put on the helmet. Here's what he says. Our light and momentary troubles. (laughs) That's what the Apostle Paul calls getting beaten, stoned with rocks, shipwrecked, cold, hungry, fatigued. He calls them light and momentary troubles. How could he say that? Well, it's because it's what you compare it to. Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So add up all the sufferings of this life, add up what's coming. Oh, what's coming far outweighs them all. It is so glorious that Paul says our present sufferings cannot even be compared to the glory that will be revealed to us. And so he's got confidence, confidence to go through the fiery ordeals that he had to go through and that you and I can go through knowing his hope was secure. Or finally, think of Jesus himself. What kept Jesus going when they lashed his back with the cat of nine tails 39 times? What kept Jesus going when they pierced his wrists with those iron nails? What kept him going when he was suffering what everyone says is one of the most horrific deaths that anyone could ever die? What kept him going and not quitting? What kept him going and not just saying, enough, and obliterating the whole world with but a word? He created it. Surely he could have obliterated it. What kept him going? Hebrews 12 says, it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. The joy. So there was a a hope. There was something in the future, something on the other side of the cross that Jesus kept his eyes fixed on. And it was that joy in the future on the other side of what he was going through that enabled him to persevere through the fiery ordeal that he had to persevere through. And what is the joy that Jesus was looking forward to? It's you and I. It's that by his blood... He would ransom people from every tribe and nation and tongue and purchase them to come back to God. It's the joy that was set before him that he knew one day there would be a great multitude standing before the throne of God who were there because he shed his blood for them. It was the joy that he would have his bride, the church, the joy that one day he would bring these people out from darkness and into his light of his kingdom forever. The joy set before him. That hope of the future is what kept him going as well and gave him confidence. So where do you need hope this morning? What is the fiery ordeal that you're going through? Raise the shield of faith. Trust that your father knows what he's doing. The refiner knows what he's doing. The great gardener knows what he's doing. And put on the helmet of salvation, which gives you confidence in the midst of that great battle that we are all in so often. Confidence that a day is coming when Christ will return and bring all who belong to him into an eternal world free of all suffering and pain and evil. And on that day, there will be no more war. There will be no more battles. Metaphorically, figuratively, spiritually, or physically. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, even as we prepare our hearts for communion now, we want to take a moment to bow before you and just say, forgive us for our lack of faith. Forgive us for not following you. Forgive us when we have Like Adam and Eve, our parents before us, when we have sinned against you, not believing that you have our best interests at heart, forgive us of this, O God. And we thank you that you sent your Son into this world to rescue us. We thank you, Father, for his blood shed for us, his body given on that cross for us. We thank you for the hope that we have in him. What tremendous hope. That this life, when it ends, is not just to cease to exist, but that we can be with you, our creator, forever. We praise you and we thank you for this hope that you have given us. What a secure hope that, Jesus, you died and rose again, and so we, too, will be raised. We thank you for all this you've given to us. Help us to apply what is already ours. Help us to live out all the privileges, the rights, and the freedoms that are already ours in you. Forgive us when we don't do that. We pray this in your name. Amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and gatherings, visit us at centralbaptistchurch.ca. Thanks for listening to the Central Baptist Church Podcast.